you can find through the door over here by the piano. And as our kids are heading out to Children's Church, would you open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 10. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find that on page 634, 634. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12. This is June. This is the month of weddings, where this month, on every weekend, there will be uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of couples tying the knot. And in these various uh, wedding ceremonies that will be taking place, there will often be a scripture passage that is read in these ceremonies. And it's often uh, the same Scripture passage. Do you know the passage that is read? It's 1 Corinthians 13. Seems like every wedding, almost every wedding, that's the default. You know, you don't know what else to read. Read 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. And so on and so forth. And uh, it's a great passage because, hey, you're celebrating the love that's being uh, committed to between a couple. It's one of those passages that doesn't really offend people. You know, there's a lot of passages you could read from the Scripture that might be offensive. But, you know, the love passage. Who isn't for love? I mean, we're all kind of pro-love, right? I mean, is there anyone here who's anti-love? I mean, we, we like love songs. Um, some of us like romantic comedies. You know, this love is just one of those themes that's hard to be against. The problem I have with love, though, I, I do have a problem with love. My problem is... Uh, the people who I'm actually supposed to love. This is the difficulty now, isn't it? That love is such a wonderful idea in the abstract. You know, but it's when I have to then specifically deal with real live people and love them, that it becomes extremely challenging. You know, you've heard the old one-liner, I love humanity, it's people I can't stand, right? You know, we, we like the idea of love and everybody getting along, but when it comes to actually living in unity, that's extremely difficult at times. I do premarital counseling with couples, and uh, I've often thought that it would be far more fruitful to do a year of post-marital counseling. Because, you know, before you get married, you start asking questions like, so, you know, how's, how's your relationship? Oh, it's great, we love each other. And, you know, well, how's your communication as a couple? Oh, we communicate so well. We, we just, we understand each other's souls. And it's like, yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> at post-marital counseling, though, that's where it's at. Because that's when you get real. And that's when you have all the expectations and assumptions that you've never talked about. They all come out. And that's when the conflicts start happening. That's when you need to really really practice all the love stuff that was talked about in the wedding. The real life living together. The same is true in the church. I was talking to a brother at the annual business meeting we had on Tuesday. Great meeting. Uh, And I was talking to him afterwards and he was sharing with me his experience of working in the church and leading ministry in the church. He said, you know, when when I start out, it was very idealistic. It was like, great, I'm going to get involved in the church now. I'm going to serve. I'm going to lead a ministry. And he said, but then once you start getting involved with real people in the church, you realize, wow, there's a lot of failings here and shortcomings. And where are all the people who are supposed to be acting Christianly? And why am I not acting Christianly like I thought I was supposed to? We, we know that we're sinners saved by grace. We say that. Christians are just sinners saved by grace. But you forget, we're sinners saved by grace. 
And so we fail each other, we disappoint each other, even in the church. And sometimes people are very turned off because they experience the way churches are filled with sinners saved by grace. So I want to talk, with this whole, talk on this whole topic of dealing with disappointments in others, and specifically when it becomes controversial, when there are quarrels, divisions, and disagreements, even between Christians. How are we supposed to handle that? Uh, today we are moving into the final segment of our Proverbs series. It'll take us through August, then we'll be done. Uh, we just finished a little segment on work and wealth and decision-making, for those of you who've been here. And now I want to move to this final segment, which I'm sort of entitling, Wisdom Lived Out in Community. That we not only follow God individually, but we're part of communities, whether that's marriage or society or the family. And I want to talk about what wisdom looks like in community. Uh, dealing with the poor, issues of leadership, and Proverbs talks about those kinds of things. But we need to start with this theme of conflict, because once we get involved in community, there will be conflict, disappointments, and setbacks. And so, <clears throat> let's look at Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12, where it says, Hatred stirs up dissension, but love covers all wrongs. So in dealing with the issue of conflict, Proverbs wants to take us to the issue of the heart. Not even actions, but the heart. As I am facing a tense situation with other people, am I responding fundamentally with an attitude of hatred or with an attitude of love? And then out of either hatred or love, will then come certain actions that will cascade forth from that attitude. If I and if I'm fundamentally full of hate towards somebody, then that is going to cause dissension to be increased. The flames are going to grow higher. If instead I am poised with love, it's going to tend to diminish quarrels and controversy. So let's look at each of those two paths, those two attitudes and how they play themselves out. Let's look at the first one where it says, hatred stirs up dissension. Now, as I read that and I was studying this, I thought, you know, we kind of have a problem here in understanding this verse. Because in our 21st century postmodern America, we tend, I think, to associate the word hatred with extreme anger and violence, right? Like, like we think of someone who hates somebody. We're thinking of someone who's enraged and they're abusive or aggressive and it spills over in even physical violence. You know, when you think of hatred, you think of like Anakin Skywalker in Star Wars, who's so overwhelmed with anger and the dark side of the force that he just plunges into this new person. He becomes Darth Vader. He's so filled with hatred. And so the problem, though, is that then we, with that sort of understanding of hatred as an extreme violent reaction, we then read this verse and say, hatred stirs up dissension. You go, well, that doesn't apply to me because I don't hate anyone. You know, I don't hate that person. I don't like them. And I don't want to talk to them. And I never want to see them again. I never have them in my house. And, you know, whatever just happened to them, well, you know, actually they had it coming and I'm not so sad. <laughs> but I don't hate them. And I think at that point, it's semantic. That, you know, what is hatred? What does it mean to hate? And it seems to me that somewhere in the, our understanding of sort of the DNA of hatred, it, it seems that there's a core concept that hating is when I want ill to befall somebody. When I don't care if something awful happens to you. I really don't want good to happen to you. And in fact, I'm kind of satisfied when I hear that you're struggling. 
It seems to me that's at the root of hatred. And if you take that basic concept of not wanting good and instead wanting ill to befall another person, that seems to me that's a lot broader than just violence. That, that expresses itself in a lot of different ways. And you see some of those ways in Proverbs. Uh, it starts with our thoughts, with just what's going on in our head. I think hatred begins with thinking ill against another person. Look at chapter 12 of Proverbs, verse 20. Proverbs 12:20. This proverb says, "There is deceit in the hearts of those who plot evil, but joy for those who promote peace." So again, we have this contrast between peacemakers and those who would stir up dissension. And notice now, instead of talking about hatred, we're talking about plotting evil. So that if I wish someone ill will, it's going to start with my thinking. This is how it usually happens. Somebody does something to hurt me. They uh, say something over a lunch or they do something inconsiderate or they shoot me an email or whatever. And the first thing I do is I start thinking about it. I start playing the tape in my mind again. I can't believe they said that. Oh, I forgot they said that too. Oh. And we th- or if it's an email, that's even worse. Those are the worst because then you can reread it. And you read it and read it and then you read between the lines and you start interpreting and interpreting more deeply. And, and so we start getting ticked off as we begin rehearsing the injustice that at least we perceive anyway has been done against us. And then the shift takes place and we start thinking, you know what I should have said? I should have said this. I should have said that. You know what I really wanted to say was that. You know what? I need to call somebody. I need to shoot an email to this person. How about if I forward their email onto that person? And maybe, and you know, and now we're starting to move into actions. What's happening? We're forming a plan in our minds, and our hearts, of how really to bring harm in some general way to this other person. And that's where the plotting evil begins. We don't recognize it as such, but notice that's the nature of sin, is that we're very self-deceived. It says in verse 20, there is deceit in the hearts of those who plot evil. And I think that not only includes deceiving others, but even deceiving ourselves. And to saying, well, I mean, I'm not plotting evil, I don't hate them, I'm just hmm, thinking these thoughts. And maybe even we imagine sometimes violence in our minds. You know, wouldn't it be great just to punch the person out or whatever? And that's the same kind of plotting of evil. Isn't that not the spirit of hatred in our minds? And if that continues, it will eventually spill out into action in some form or another. Often the action that takes place when I uh, am filled up with anger and hatred toward another is gossip. That's often one of the ways that comes out is Rather than dealing with the person directly, I begin to wage sort of a campaign, uh, building a coalition of the willing who will support me against this threat, this other person. Uh, Look at Proverbs chapter 16, if you will. Verse 28. Proverbs 16, says, a perverse man stirs up dissension, and a gossip separates close friends. So by talking to others, I'm trying to separate them from the person who has aggrieved me in some way or another. Or look at chapter 17, verse 9. He who covers over an offense promotes love, but whoever repeats the matter separates close friends. What am I supposed to do when someone offends me? Biblically. What's the biblical path? 
You go directly to the person. And you say, look, this is kind of awkward, but I really need to talk to you about something. And you may not even realize you did this or said this, but let me tell you. And you do it directly. But that's so often the last thing we do. You know, we, instead, instead of going in a straight line to the person, it's just our natural tendency to kind of go circular to everybody else except the person until we outflank the person socially, so to speak. And we now have uh, our uh, agents who view the situation our way turned against that person. It's just our natural way of operating. And, of course, we do it on Christian guys. We go to the person and say, ah, can I share a prayer request with you? You know. I need some wisdom from you on a particular situation and just some spiritual guidance. And then, you know, blah, 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 tell them all the stuff that that other person did. And, and do we not at some level savor and relish and enjoy recounting the injustices one by one? And at that point, we have to ask, like, what's really going on here? Am I really seeking wisdom? Which I don't think is wrong to do. Are we really seeking prayer from a trusted advisor? Which I don't think is wrong to do. But, or are we really trying to turn somebody to our perspective on this other person? So we have to search our hearts. And once again, it's the issue of hatred. And eventually, we will sometimes take action. And we will begin to seek justice and vindication for what was done to us. You did this to me. Okay, therefore, I have now the right to do that to you. And yet Proverbs warns us against that as well. So look at Proverbs chapter uh, 24. Proverbs 24, verses 28 and 29. As we see this escalation from thoughts to words to actions. Proverbs 24, 29. Do not say, I'll do to him as he has done to me. I'll pay that man back for what he did. You going to do that to me? Fine. I'm going to do this to you. You can tailgate me. All right. How about I slam on my brakes? Huh? How do you like that? Hypothetically speaking. Um, yeah, you know, you're going to sue me? Okay, I'll sue you. Uh, you're going to snub me socially? Well, we'll see if your kid gets invited to my kid's party. Huh? And we'll see about that. Uh, insults, uh, arguments so quickly can move from uh, an argument about an issue, trying to resolve an issue, to becoming arguments where we would forget what the issue is. It's just, it's just now trying to take the other person out verbally. I'm just going to try to think of things to say that will hurt you, even as you think of things to say that will try to hurt me. I don't even know what we're arguing about anymore. It's, it's just, you know, everything in the kitchen sink's coming into the ring. The, you know, the chairs have come into the ring, and we're swinging everything at each other, no matter what they are. Uh, and now, the, it's, now it's moved from an issue to ad hominem attacks, trying to tear down the character of the other person. And, and then you're like, what were we fighting about in the first place? So easy for arguments and... Uh, insults to start falling into this pattern of if you did that to me, I will do that to you. And the dangerous thing is, there's this dangerous sort of Christian concept we often use to justify that, and it's the, it's the idea of justice. This is a biblical concept. But it's so tempting, and I just want to say so dangerous, to begin using justice as the justification for my paying you back. Right? It's like I'm standing up for what's right here. Someone's got to stand up for the truth. Like, really? Is it really justice or is it not just ego and pride? It's not just the fact that how dare you say that to me, but, but we cover it over with justice. The thing you have to understand is 
The devil loves to play the justice card. This is a common trick. Someone does, here's how it works. Someone does something to offend you. And what happens is the devil puts on the robes of justice. And he comes up next to us and says, I can't believe that person did that to you. That's not biblical. <laughs> You're right. That isn't biblical. In fact, you know, you need to stand up against that. Someone's got to stand up for truth in this world. Yeah, you're right. Someone does have to stand up for God's ways. God's name is getting trampled on here, and someone needs to go out there and stand up for God. That's what's wrong with our culture. Oh, yeah, you're right. I do need to do that. And then Satan pulls out the sword of justice, and he says, draw forth the sword. Go forth as God, in God's name and bring justice in this situation. And we draw the sword thinking that we are doing the work of God. But instead, it's just our own ego and our own pride. Do we really care about justice in interpersonal relationships and about fairness and what's right? The Scripture tells us what to do. Look back at Proverbs chapter 22. I'm sorry, chapter 20, verse 22. Two more chapters back. 20, verse 22. Do not say, I'll pay you back for this wrong. Wait for the Lord and He will deliver you. If I really care about justice, then I will pray, I will be patient, and I will wait for the Lord. As it says in uh, Romans chapter 12, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. And so really, yeah, there is justice. There is a, an issue of right and wrong. But... There are other ways for that to be carried out. And it's not me getting even with somebody. I need to trust God in His timing, in His justice. Because He's the judge. He's the one who holds the sword of judgment, not me. And if we don't get a grap grapple on this, we don't grasp this and get it under control, if we don't address this, then the hatred and the dis dissension that we have can quickly flame out of control. What started as a little fire that I fanned in the flame suddenly is consuming my entire house. And what happens with dissensions and arguments is they just become bigger and bigger until pretty soon they're so large that even the combatants, even the pugilists at the center of the disagreement look at each other and they're going, how did it get this bad? What happened? I, I, this wasn't on any of us intended. Or to maybe move from a fire image to a water image. Look at this one. Proverbs 17.14 This is a great image of how a quarrel and a disagreement becomes so large and out of control that it sweeps people away. Proverbs 17.14 Starting a quarrel is like breaching a dam. So drop the matter before the dispute breaks out. That image, that bursting forth of a dam. I was reading about one of the uh, worst disasters involving a dam breaking in the world. It was 1975 in China. There was the uh, Banquio Dam uh, that was built to sustain a certain amount of water in a reservoir. But what happened was they had these torrential, kind of like once in a thousand year kind of rains that came down for like 24 hours. I forget how many inches it, it was. It was like 24 inches, 24 hours, something just unbelievable. And the reservoir filled up, the dam burst. And that caused a cascade of dams to break downstream. And apparently, a, a wall of water 10 to 20 feet high, moving at 30 miles an hour, swept down the valley. Let's just talk about terrifying, you know? And 26,000 people died, swept away in that dam burst. 
Uh, another 100,000 uh, or more were uh, suspected dead because of the epidemics from all the um, lack of clean water that, that comes after a flood will happen. And all from that dam bursting. And, you know, what a, what a graphic picture that is of how a quarrel and disagreements and fighting they break forth and they become bigger than anyone even realizes. You know, you look at a marriage, you're like, how did we get to this place in the marriage? It, somehow we got here. And none of us, either of us, attend, when we took those vows, we weren't intending this to happen. And yet, it can become unchecked and grow wild. Or maybe uh, some of us have been in churches where there's been deep disagreements and divisions and discord. And you, you step back and you try to figure out, like, what is happening to this church? And yeah, there's this person and there's that situation, but it's, somehow it's gotten bigger than that and no one even knows how to stop it or why it's so out of control. And that can happen in businesses and schools. It's just like a dam bursting. So brothers and sisters, we need to pull ourselves back from the brink. We cannot go this direction. Hatred, dissension, quarreling, evil thoughts, gossip, payback is a road to destruction. It is playing right into the enemy's hand. Instead, we need to go back to that original fork in the road where we were first offended and search our hearts again. And instead of adopting the easy, instinctive path of hatred and wrath, we need to look at the pathway of love. So let's go back to that initial fork in the road. Go back to chapter 10, verse 12. Our verse we started with. And let us contemplate the alternative trajectory for how we can respond to conflict. One is hatred, which stirs up dissension. The other is love that covers over all wrongs. What is love? Um, again, at the core, I think it must include the idea of ultimately wanting good and blessing to befall another person. And I want you to be blessed and to succeed and to be filled with joy. That's love. You want that for someone else. Even if that person has the polar opposite personality of yours and you just grate on each other. But if I love you, you know what? I still want blessing to come to you. And even if you offend me in some way and it really bothers me, if I love you, I'm still wanting good to befall you. And even if something happens in our relationship that is so huge and monumental that it, in a sense, cuts off the relationship and that if any hope of reconciliation is going to happen, it's going to take a ton of work. And as a result of this huge thing that's in between us, we can't just pretend that everything's fine. Even when that happens, when there's betrayal and disappointment at a monumental level, if I love you, even then I'm still praying, God, do something in their heart. Bless them. I'm still praying for that person. That's what love does. As you can see, love is not an empty sentimentality or mere romanticism. The love of the Bible takes sacrifice and commitment. And it is, I believe, a kind of love that is beyond any of us in our natural selves. It's only the kind of love the Holy Spirit can put in our hearts. That kind of love. And notice what love does. Love covers over all wrongs. So, as hate, so where hatred is stoking the fire, love is throwing a blanket on the fire. Where hatred is trying to wake dissension up, love is trying to put it to bed and tuck it in and send it to sleep. Love is trying to cover it over. Now, what does that mean to cover it over? Does that mean that when something is done that's wrong that we, we just ignore it? Actually, sometimes I think it does. Frankly. 
I, I think if I really love someone, there's going to be a lot of things that I, I'm simply going to overlook. Uh, in fact, look at Proverbs chapter 19, verse 11. Not everything, but probably more things than I do actually overlook. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 11. says, a man's wisdom gives him patience. It is to his glory to overlook an offense. It can be a testimony to patience and kindness in our hearts to just absorb a lot of stuff. We don't have to react to everything. Uh, I remember, you know, you just remember weird little incidents and conversations in your life. There's this one I remember. It was when I was um, the assistant pastor here, and we had an interim pastor. His name was Ray Pendleton. He's kind of like the pastor's pastor, just an amazing guy. So I, I studied how to be a pastor under him after I finished seminary. He was great. And uh, I remember this one incident. We had a staff meeting, and apparently someone in the church had said some negative things about Dr. Pendleton. And someone else on staff had heard it, and they brought it to the staff meeting and said, by the way, and I remember who it was now, but so-and-so, and I remember what they said, but they, I remember they said something negative and disparaging about Ray Pendleton. And you know, all of us who loved him, we loved him. We were like, what? You know, you said what? You know, we were all getting all fired up and angry. And I'll never forget this. Ray just said, that's what they said? He goes, oh, I've had a lot worse things than that said about me. <laughs> and it's like, it was diffused, just like that. Like, by him overlooking that and making, and I was like, I remember that line. That's a good line. By him just kind of dismissing that, it took all the fire out of his underlings who are ready to go to the mat for him. And we're all just like, oh, oh, let it go. It's no big deal. I'll just tell you, some of us are just too darn sensitive. Like, you know what? You're not really that important. <laughs> Neither am I. You know, we act like if something's done to us, like, the world has to stop. Like, people, grow some, some thick skin. Not the thick skin of calloused cynicism, but the thick skin of love that loves people enough that I'm willing to absorb. Not that I, I don't realize people do some rude things, but I can absorb it and I can say, you know what? I can love past that. I'm bigger than that through Christ's Holy Spirit living in me. I can overcome that. You know, some of us are just so sensitive. We think everything is about us and we take everything personally. It's like, just let it go. And let the Holy Spirit thicken up your heart with love, not with hardened callousness, but with love. And we can overlook a lot. Does that mean that we overlook every injustice in life? Of course not. In some situations, which takes wisdom to discern, some situations I think overlooking things and ignoring them actually does more damage than good. Some situations need to be addressed directly. But even in those situations, as we talked about before, the way to deal with it is to humbly and lovingly go straight to the person and say, hey, I, I got to talk to you about something and this is not going to be comfortable. Is it okay if I... And usually they'll go, okay, and then you have a conversation. And in love, do that. Even in the extreme situation where somebody is challenged on a point of sin and they will not repent... And, you know, the Bible talks about church discipline. Jesus taught us that if someone is so recalcitrant, even though many people have gone to him, there actually comes to a place where the church has the authority to excommunicate people. I know, you know, as Americans, that sounds like, oh, but that's what Jesus taught. 
And sometimes even in the church, there come those extreme cases where someone has to be put out of the church because they just will not come back to their senses in Christ. But even then, if you have to go to that extreme God forbid situation, you're doing it with the hope that what? That that extreme action will wake them up so that they'll come back. So that they'll come back to Christ and back into the fellowship of the local community. And so even in that situation, it is love desiring somebody to be restored. But love will even take us further than this. It will take us even further than overlooking the difficulties that we have. Love will even take us to extremes of being kind to those who hate us. Look at this text. Look at uh, chapter 25. You know, this time the Bible has just gone too far. I'm sorry. This is just too far. I mean, this kind of Christianity, this is bordering on religious fanaticism. Look at this. Proverbs 25, 21-22. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. What? If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. So there, if you want revenge, that's what you do, okay? Those of you who want a pound of flesh, go out and be nice. Right? <laughs> and the Lord will reward you. To do good to someone who's hurt me? Ah, I just don't go there. Maybe you're way past me spiritually and you do that naturally. That's tough. But it's not option. It's not optional. This is not just a proverb for the real mature Christians. This is what Jesus taught us. Remember what he said in Matthew 5? Don't turn it off. I'll just read it to you. Matthew chapter 5. Jesus said almost the same thing. He said, You have heard it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. In other words, we need to imitate God. We need to show that we're His children by loving our enemies the way God loves His enemies. He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. You know, right now it's, it's raining, right? You guys walked in here, it's raining on you. It didn't just rain on the Christians' lawns today. It rained on the angry atheists' lawns today. And it rained on all the different people's lawns today. He, he sends His blessings so broadly. He responds so kindly to His enemies. So, verse 46, if you love those who love you, what reward do you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? If you greet only your brothers, what are you doing uh, more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? I mean, even Al-Qaeda is nice to other Al-Qaeda. Brothers always support brothers. You know, even partners in crime, even scoundrels will show some kind of honor among thieves. But he says, no, 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 be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And perfection in this context means love for my enemies, which I just find astoundingly challenging. And I recognize that the only way I can have this kind of love is if God's Holy Spirit fills me with this kind of love. Because this is not human. This is divine love. It must come from the Holy Spirit into my heart to love like this. And brothers and sisters, don't we have in God's love for His enemies. Don't we who are the people of the cross have the ultimate example of loving your enemies because of the way God loved us? We were the enemies of God. 
We were sinful people at one time who lived in hostility to God. Let me put it this way. No one has ever deserved better than God deserves from us. And yet, no one has ever received greater injustice than God has received from us. Let me say that again. No one has ever deserved better than what God deserves from me and from us. And yet, no one has ever received worse than what God has received from us. I mean, we, we look at our lives. We disregard His Word. We don't believe it's true. We, we deny His, His reality in our lives. We harm His creation. We uh, harm those created in His image. We disbelieve the Gospel. We downplay the go- glory of God and play up the glory and wonder of human beings. Just in every way, we have rejected God's rule. And still, He is kind. He still sends the rain. Or to use that uh, imagery of the dam in the reservoir, God's patience is like a great dam holding back the waters of judgment against this world. And though we deserve to be swept away, His patience and His kindness holds back His judgment. And what do we do? We continue to rain down sin and rain down unbelief. And so the reservoir is filling and it's filling and the dam is being stretched to its maximum capacity. And still God holds back His his wrath with His patience. And still we sin pouring down rain upon that reservoir. And even though this is the situation in which we find ourselves, to think that Even then, not only did God show kindness to us in creation and holding back His wrath, but He ultimately demonstrated His love for His enemies by sending His Son. (laughs) But God demonstrates His love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. He died for me. His Son died for me. I wouldn't give my son for anybody. You know? I love my son. To think that God would go to such extreme lengths so that when Jesus was crucified, the judgment that God's enemies deserved was visited upon Christ? It's amazing that God would love me to such an extent. So, brothers and sisters, we have no excuse for hatred we have the ultimate example of what it means to love our enemies. Those of us who call ourselves followers of Christ are, are those who claim to have experienced the greatest act of love ever committed was God's love for us in sending His own Son. And so we need to sit with Christ. We need to sit at the foot of the cross and meditate on this gift of love and let that energize us through the Spirit and through Christ's death to be filled up with this kind of supernatural love for our enemies when we're in a state of conflict. To even be willing to do good for them. And you say, ah, but they're going to get away with it. Ah, Look, there's nothing in the Bible that commands you to win a lawsuit. I can't find any commands in the Bible that say it's up to you to clear your name. But I find lots of commands to glorify Christ. To be willing to suffer for the Gospel. And so if I end my Christian life and I have responded to conflict by loving people, even my enemies, the way God did, I have succeeded as a Christian because I have lived out the Gospel that I proclaim with my lips. If I tell people the Gospel of Christ but I don't love my enemies, my actions are denying the Gospel that I I claim to proclaim and believe. 
And I believe there's also a word of encouragement here and a word of hope for for anyone who doesn't know Christ. Maybe that's where you're at today. Maybe you're here for all kinds of weird reasons brought you here and you're kind of checking church out. Maybe you've been away for like 15 years and you're kind of coming back in trying to figure this all out. How does it all fit together? And I just want to encourage you by saying that there is a Savior. That Jesus Christ is the perfect Savior for sinners. That He on the cross has done everything necessary to bring you forgiveness and reconciliation to God. That you no longer have to be an enemy of God. You can become a friend of God through Christ's death on the cross. And I would just warn you that, that the time is short. You know, the dam will not hold forever. Some of the things we see in the Scriptures. That there will come a point when God says enough is enough and the dam will burst. And on that day, there's only one safe place to be when the dam bursts. is on the high ground of Jesus Christ. To be up on the rock. To be standing on Christ's salvation. Not on my own sense of I'm a good person. But standing on the high ground of Christ. Saying, He is my Savior. And there's still room on the rock. I just want you to know there's still space on the rock. And Christ bids you to come and be saved. So put your faith in Christ today. Let's pray. Lord God, thank You for Your great love for us. I just want to thank You that Jesus died for us. That through His death on the cross, we who are Your enemies have become Your sons and daughters. That we've been forgiven, washed, renewed, and even filled up with the Holy Spirit. And that, God, we've been empowered to love. And we just pray that You would help us to love. And I pray, God, specifically for anyone here who is facing an immediate and challenging conflict in their marriage, their family, with their children, at work, in the church, maybe this church, maybe there's two people sitting in this service right now who fall into that category of tension. And God, I just pray that You would pour out Your Spirit and enable us to love and to want the good of the other, and to pray for it and work for it. Lord, would You bring peace? Would You help us to be peacemakers? Jesus, You said, blessed are the peacemakers. Help us to be peacemakers. And Lord, I pray for anyone here who's asking questions, who's searching. Jesus, I pray that You would reveal Your great love to them directly. That You would show them that, God, You died for Your enemies. You sent Your Son to die for Your enemies. And so, Lord, I pray that people would see Jesus and they would fall in love with Him and that they would turn away from sin and embrace Christ as Savior and Lord. God, I pray that You would do this all through Your Spirit's power. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's sing of God's amazing love. Would you turn in the red celebration hymnal to number 347? Number 347. And can it be?